0: So this is from John chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace, we have, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We're wrapping up a little mini-series called First Light, and we've just been combing through the Apostle John's take on the Christmas story. And it's not so much filled with, uh, you know, detailed historical facts and genealogies like the other Gospels, but certainly it speaks to history, um, things that have happened. And today I'd like to share a message entitled, Light of Christmas Reveals God's Glory. Um, certainly, John, it comes out clearly. he uh, has this beautiful theme of light and describing Jesus as the true light, um, and we all know light, one of its functions it exposes, it reveals, and so, I hope, as we work through today 's passage, uh, the end of john 's epic intro, his Christmas story, his introduction of of Jesus coming to this world, that there will be a light that shines in your heart, in your minds, that stirs your affections, that moves your will um, because the glory of Christmas is revealed, okay? Um, Now as we're transitioning to Christmas break um, for school and the kids, my kids have been uh, getting me to watch movies with them and one movie that they've introduced to me, a deeply theological piece of uh, art, Wreck-It Ralph breaks the internet uh and in this movie there are two protagonists wreck it ralph uh he's the bigger fellow you see in the picture there and princess vanellope now i say that this is a deeply theological movie because in the introduction uh vanellope is having an existential crisis and she asks uh ralph uh doesn't the very nature of our existence, and they are arcade game characters living in this arcade world, and basically the nature of their existence is to get up, go to work, you know, play, play the roles of their arcade game, uh, get paid for it by people putting coins in and so forth, and then at, when the arcade closes, then they, you know, relax and have some fun and then rinse and repeat. And so she asks, doesn't the very nature of our existence make you wonder if there's more to life than this? And Ralph answers, very much representative of probably the average human being, uh, why would I wonder if there's more to life when the life I've got is perfect? And Penelope responds back, are you really saying there's not one solitary thing about your life that you would want to change. Are you saying there's not one thing that you would want to change? And Ralph says, the only scenario that I want to change is not going to work. Other than that, I love my life. Now this is a a kid's movie, but though that script, that line is very adult. It's very it very much describes probably a lot of things that go on in our thoughts and minds if we pay attention to to just the longings of our souls. Now, as a city, as a province, we're on edge. Uh, I'm waiting to hear further announcements from the government of whether this gray situation will uh, continue or not, the lockdown situation. But as we face the second wave and the government's lockdown strategy, surely the majority of us, I think, would have a positive answer to Vanellope's life quandary. Are you really saying there's not one solitary thing about your life that you would want to change. And I'm pretty sure I can speak for the majority of us that there are many things we could change, we wish we could change right now as we are facing the pandemic and the lockdown. But the reality is, the reality is, and I'm going to get in your faces a little bit already, straight off the bat, the reality is that a lot of us aren't shaken existentially to the core during this pandemic because many of us, at least here in Toronto... In the West, we have enough insulation to protect us. Perhaps we have the insulation of finances. Perhaps we have the insulation of uh, health, and we haven't been, uh, we've not been spared the virus thus far. Perhaps we have the insulation of denial, <laughs> or whatever it may be. And so what I mean specifically is that many of us, we're, we're happy to wrestle with the practical you know, daily stuff here and now, but we haven't been shaken existentially to the core and awakened by this pandemic to the most important realities, the the reality of life after this life. So what will command our attention? What's going to get our attention? C.S. Lewis, he has a lot of wonderful thoughts and reflections on what it means to follow Jesus, and he reflects... uh, this way, in his book, Mere Christianity, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. And he, this is just a, a meditation by him, a reflection. But certainly, if we're going to we're listen to C.S. Lewis, then we need to be asking, what does God want to say to humanity, really, as this is a global pandemic, and to you personally in your life right now as you're navigating this pandemic, what would he say He shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I hope as we work through this passage um, that there might be a prayer that is stirred in your heart, something like this. Lord, this Advent season, deepen my wonder of your glory. Because glory is going to ultimately be what needs to awaken our hearts. what will awaken our hearts. When we, just in life, you take anything, you know, we're talking about the glory of God ultimately, but you take something glorious, something a smaller glory, something beautiful, something wonderful, something attractive, and it turns our heads. It grabs our attention. But the Advent season speaks to the highest glory, the greatest glory. Now let's make sure we're on the same page. And uh, just a quick sort of biblical theological definition. Biblical glory, when you read the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a common understanding of glory. It means something weighty, something heavy. And mixed with that, usually a brightness, a splendor, a brilliance. But something, as the closest word I can think of in our modern-day English, is something like gravitas. Now, specifically, it, it means a weighty judgment or a weighty opinion. And so when we speak of God's glory, it is his weightiest statement, his weightiest word. But his words are beautiful and true and therefore full of splendor. Now the opposite of glorious then would just be something common, trivial, mundane, something that we easily overlook. And sadly, in a lot of people's hearts, we've turned Christmas into something mundane. And so we lose the glory of Christmas. And so I hope, again, my prayer is that, that your wonder for God's glory revealed in Christmas would be uh, deepened. So I think, John, in this last passage, uh, last section of this amazing introduction, his Christmas story, um, the, the, a question that is there is how does God's glory shine through Christmas? So here's the first big idea that I want you to see with me. Uh, we see first the glory of became flesh. The word became flesh. Let's put our observation goggles on and, and we look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. Now I want you to notice first that this doesn't mean that Jesus was born as a baby. He grew up and then one day he had the crazy thought, I think I'm God. He didn't all of a sudden, he wasn't a human being and then decide that, He's going to take on the identity of God. That's what we might call a crazy person. No. Jesus existed as God, with God, from eternity past to eternity future. He was God from the very beginning, and God became human. That's what Scripture means, that he became flesh. Now, I want you to notice as well, this verb here, sometimes it's good to pay attention to grammar, because there's intentionality uh, in, in uh, how the authors write what they have written. And this word became, for the, the people who appreciate you know, arguments from grammar, the grammar nerds out there, this, this tense is what's called aorist. And it means a completed, definite action. And so I want you to notice here as well that God, when he became flesh, in the form of Jesus becoming babe and growing up into a man, becoming human just like you and me. It was an irreversible act. God irreversibly humbled himself. He is eternally Emmanuel. He is eternally God with us. God the Son, without ceasing for a moment to be divine, he united himself to a full human nature and became an authentic person, and he has chosen to do that. That's a big commitment. Jesus pulled a really big trigger there, and there was no turning back for him. He irreversibly, once and for all, definitively became God-man, and he humbled himself. This act of self-humbling on the part of God is irreversible, and the word flesh there is a startling one. It John doesn't use the direct word for a body or man, but this word flesh, it it really speaks of humanity. God, through Christ, is now identifying himself with humanity. Now, I want to put it into perspective. I'm going to use a computer analogy. Uh, We're all increasingly technological these days, so hopefully you can appreciate this analogy. The black and white picture on the left is a picture of Uh, officially what the internet says is the very first computer, uh, the ENIAC computer. And this computer, uh, it took three years to build. Uh, It was started in 1943, wasn't completed till 1946. Uh, This picture does not do justice to the size. The size of it was around 1,800 square feet, approximately the size of a three- to four-bedroom home. And... It had 18,000 vacuum tubes, uh, and it weighed almost 50 tons. Now, along comes uh, a scholar, Dr. Michio Kaku, and he writes a a neat book to put all this technology into perspective. And probably the majority of us are just arm's reach away from a smartphone. And he argues, and, and people have agreed, that in that little small phone that you can put in your hand, is more computational power than this first mega computer. In fact, a computer similar to this was used to send uh, the first men to the moon. Just these house sized computers were required. And he's saying, he's arguing, in our hands, these small little things that now we just play games like Angry Birds and fling pigs or birds at pigs and launching them to cartoon moons in, in these games has more computational power than this first giant computer. Now, what I want you to get is, what I want you to appreciate is how something so massive, so great can be brought down into something so accessible and tangible. Now, the analogy is not perfect. It breaks down pretty quickly. But I want you to appreciate, just begin to think, that God, God, the creator of the universe, who can't be contained, somehow mysteriously, beautifully is put into this little form of babe and human and irreversibly. Gregory the Great, church father, on Jesus becoming flesh, he meditates. Jesus increasing what is ours. By becoming human, becoming so small, he actually beautifully and ironically increases what is ours coming to make available to us all of God and His goodness while not diminishing what is His, even as He becomes small. So we continue to observe John. He says, not only He became flesh, but He dwelt among us. And this word dwelt, perhaps you've heard it said. That just literally means tented. Jesus literally pitched His tent or Uh, to connect it back to, and John is intentionally connecting it back to the Old Testament, that Jesus tabernacled. Now we need to ask, what is the significance of tabernacle? And what I want, what I want you to take away today is that the tabernacle represents God's temporary solution for atonement. God's temporary solution for a temple. It was a temporary makeshift temple that could be Uh, wrapped up and packaged and as the Israelites were sojourning then they can unravel it where they were camping out and it became God's presence and sacrifices were made there but it was makeshift and temporary and so Jesus he's coming to show us that he is that tabernacle but now he's coming to transition us to a final secure atonement. Now, we need to pause and appreciate this because nowhere is there a parallel, just assertion, amongst all the world religions, and certainly not in an atheistic outlook on life. There is no parallel anywhere in every other worldview to the sympathetic empathetic, loving presence of God in Christ sharing our human struggle with us. See, that, that makeshift tabernacle, it even represents, because it's something temporary, it, it represents man's and God's wrestling to secure atonement. And is there something that can become permanent or not? Are we, will we always be stuck in this, this temporary makeshift situation of atonement through this tent of a temple or will God secure something permanent now when we then bring this together that the word Jesus Christ became flesh God became flesh and dwelt among us uh, I want to just today is a lots of analogies here's another analogy just think of a master chef right a master chef and Ironically, usually their master creations are really tiny too, and you're paying exorbitant amounts of money for this tiny little little peanut of a gourmet meal. Uh, But this master chef pouring out all their creative genius, all the freshest and best ingredients, all their culinary skills, and they are so proud to present their masterpiece, that last little touch. Christ. God, the Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the expression of God, His masterpiece expression of who He is to humanity. So, let's try to put this, let the rubber meet the road, and how can we live this out? How can we walk the talk? Let Advent remind us to be in wonder of God's longing to be with us irreversibly, through Jesus Christ. Now, a second big glory that I think is here in today's passage is the glory of grace and truth. Not just grace, not just truth, but grace and truth. And as we continue to read, John quickly says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, he equates it to, this is glory. There it is, glory As of the only Son from the Father, and this glory, what it's defined as is that this glory is full of grace and truth. And the word full there means lacking nothing. Perfect. It is the perfect balance and uh, just adequate, perfect, sufficient expression of who God is and His glory. And it comes in the form of Jesus Christ, the only Son from the Father. John continues now in parentheses to help us understand what he means by why this is a glory, that grace and truth he puts in parentheses in verse 15. Now John the Baptist, and remember if you've been with us these past four weeks, John the Baptist represents uh, one chapter in God's redemptive plan. The chapter of law and the prophets simply put all the do's and do, uh, do not's of God. And the, the, the most uh, piercing purpose of the law is to show you and me that we fall short of God, that we cannot be morally sufficient and perfect enough in and of ourselves. That's the purpose of the law. And so we need something greater than the law by itself. John came to say here's what God has been doing and yes it's supposed to stir up conviction even a sense of, of guilt and shame that we need atonement and to, for our hearts to cry out what is the solution who will save me as i cannot fulfill the law and so as we continue in verse 16 now John gets John the apostle gets back to Jesus as the glorious solution For from his fullness, Jesus' fullness, and this word fullness, it just literally means fulfill. From Jesus fulfilling, Jesus filling up to the full the law. That's why he speaks about the law right prior that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. And so in that sense, he's right in agreement with Matthew, the gospel we've been studying before this series and we'll get back to in the new year actually starting next week Jesus fulfills the law he fulfills the law and therefore we're able to receive grace upon grace that's why John explains in verse 17 he elaborates for the law was given through Moses now grace and truth come through Jesus Christ now that word before that expression grace upon grace it's an interesting one and actually two commentaries I read brought this out uh, that that word upon grace upon grace could actually literally be translated grace instead of grace and there is some good insightful truth there in that we need to avoid the mistake of not thinking that God was trying to be gracious to us through his law it's a mistake to just simply oversimplify and say god was an angry god in the old testament no he is the same god then as he is now in christ he was full of steadfast love and kindness and faithfulness and so his grace was there even in the law his his law was pointing to god's longing to pour out grace and make a way for us to be saved But now, we can say that there was a a sort of, you know, like a diamond, many different angles to the same brilliance. In the Old Testament, there was a certain angle to God's grace. Now, instead of that Old Testament grace, where it becomes exhausting to bring our own sacrifices and, and, and to feel sometimes more the effects of the guilt and the shame because of our falling short of the law, now, instead of that, God perfects and fulfills the law and gives us his final New Testament grace. I like to say just tongue in cheek, if you like spicy food, right? The Old Testament was like mild spicy. The New Testament is now real spicy. <laughs> the real thing. Or the the not the they're all real, but the fulfilled perfection. Now, let me let me try to convince us to appreciate this by asking this question. What if God was only grace or truth? Why why is the glory, why is the weighty statement of God, grace and truth? Well, let's ask, what if God was only grace? Or if he was only truth? If God was only truth, meaning only law, and here are his precepts, his standards, then none of us would receive God's grace because we are all morally unworthy. None of us would be able to receive God's grace if he was only truth. If God was only grace, on the other hand, then you have to accept that God just looks past every moral record of the Hitlers of history and the co-worker you loathe for taking credit for your work and we could go on and on about a list of people that we have grudges against and perhaps even more uh, unspeakable sentiments towards. Now, see, it's our human tendency, and I'll even say our human weakness, that we want to usually camp out on either only grace or only truth. Yes, and synonyms, grace, grace, Love, truth, justice. We want justice and truth for those we consider morally inferior. But when that ruler comes to measure us, you're like, but not me. <laughs> I want to slip under that, me- that ruler and not be measured by the same thing. We don't want justice for ourselves. That's not fair. Let's be honest. That's, that's not fair. We want love for ourselves. But if we want only love and grace, then we should be willing to extend all that love and grace for those for whom we want justice. It's hard for us to do that. And that's why there's a weightiness. There's a glory to grace and truth. Humans, were weak. We, we become two-faced, double-standards. So I hope you can see the the beauty, the the weightiness, the the rarity that you can bring these two together in perfect, true balance. So let us rejoice this Christmas. Let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. Christmas is supposed to be a happy time for the right reasons, and I hope one reason that you are happy, that you rejoice, that there's a song in your heart is that God is uncompromisingly perfect love and justice, grace and truth. And with all the headlines out there, uh, we want justice God's way, not our human way. And Oftentimes when we try to invoke justice, we become oppressors ourselves. But let's consider more deeply how God brings these two necessary truths together. And so I hope you see this glory here, grace and truth. But now, let's ask, it begs the question, but how? How does God make it possible to be grace and truth? How does God manifest that glory? George MacDonald wrote a wonderful Christmas hymn and says they, were, they all were looking for a king. Justice, to slay their foes and lift them high. Truth, thou camest a little baby thing, grace, that made a woman cry, love. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. And he uses that word weightily with, with some glory there. The grand miracle, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. See, the incarnation of Jesus Christ It's mind-blowing. It's this divine juxtaposition of God's truth and justice, but also His grace and love. The Christmas glory of God making Himself known by bringing these two things together. And so this is the third big glory, the big idea that that I hope uh, awakens in your heart. The glory of made Him known jesus made god known where do we see this in the text no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known john the apostle is now wrapping up his epic christmas story saying jesus is the only god And he was with God from the beginning. He was God, and everything was created through him. The only God who was at the Father's side, the Father God's side, this Jesus has made God known. Now what's neat is, again, it doesn't come out in the English, but that word made him known is one word in the original text. And uh, perhaps you've heard the word exegesis, and it's a good word to know. In life, it basically means as you're reading a text that you want what you're reading. You want the author to be able to speak for themselves. You let the text speak out of the text. The opposite would be ice a Jesus, where we read into ice means into x means out of. And what John the apostle is saying here is that Jesus is the exegesis of God. That God himself, come going back to that master chef and that beautiful, perfect dish that is being presented, that Jesus is now expressing who God is. And so here's also a statement, a temptation, that, and not only a temptation, it's become a cultural habit. We just make up our own ideas of God all the time. Whatever will tickle our fancy. And so the glory, the weightiness, God saying, you want to know who I am? then get to know Jesus. Now, one way that Jesus is so important for us, and one way that Jesus has made God known to us, uh, Anselm in the 11th century in in writing a, a piece Why God Became Man, he reflects this and I'll unpack this a bit. At first, it's a little bit hard to understand older English. Sin since no one save God, meaning since no one except God can make satisfaction for our sins. What he's saying is if we're gonna be atoned, right? Remember, go back to that tabernacle, the human struggle, and we're wrestling with God, how will we be atoned? Only God can forgive us. Only God can truly atone for our sins. Only God can do it. No human being in and of themselves except for Christ can do it. And no one save man, though, ought to do it. What he's saying, only God can save us, forgive us, but the, the guilty party should be the one that pays the price. And so there's tension here. Anselmo's bringing out some tension. Only God can save us, and it, it's a dilemma, really, but the guilty party should be the one that pays the price for that sin. So how can we be saved? And so he beautifully, succinctly, like just a knockout punch, says it is necessary for a God Man to make it. So the glory of of made him known. God is saying, "This is the way I will atone for you. I will send my Son to become Man to be God Man, and therefore, do you see the logic? I hope I hope something's lighting up in your brain." It's God, Jesus being God. Yes, he can save us. He can represent us because he can be morally perfect and he can forgive us. But now because he's man, he's actually representing us as humanity. And so it comes together. God reveals his plan for the God-man, his son. This past week, um, lots of, at least in the headline celebration, what is now affectionately called V-Day, And in the UK, I was the first uh, woman to receive a vaccination. And so I'm just using this as an analogy, metaphor. I think we can appreciate because we're living in a global pandemic and there's an appreciation for a vaccine so much now we're calling it V-Day. In history, it'll probably go down in history, in the history books as V-Day. But there is a much more glorious greater, significant V-day, V-weekend, really, that has happened in history. Take the whole notion of this virus. The vaccine is a little strand of the virus that is injected to the human body and it's constructed in such a way, engineered in such a way that our body now can be healed by it or or become immune to the virus, build up defenses as a bit of that virus is injected into us and i'm just using this analogy because we're thick in the midst of this kind of thinking and i want you to see that god himself has injected a vaccine into humanity into history jesus he is morally perfect but verses like second corinthians five twenty one say for our sake he made him, the father made his own son to be sin who knew no sin. It became a little, like, like a little strand of that virus called sin and injected into the arm of humanity so that we might become the righteousness of God. I hope you can appreciate God's glory in, in making, in Jesus making God's heart known. And God's solution being this God-man. And so let Advent remind us that this baby Jesus that is, I mean, any baby, you look at it and, and you just feel grace. Feel a tender love. And this baby Jesus that is full of grace would grow into the fullness of our substitute to satisfy God's justice and to make available God's love and bring God's grace to full fruition. To end, I might make George MacDonald turn in his grave, but I'm going to remix his Christmas hymn. They all were looking for a vaccine to slay their viral and temporal foes and restore the comfort of this life. But thou camest, a little baby thing, not just to make this life comfortable, but to heal the greater virus of sin and to solve the problem after we die. At least it rhymes. But the point is, in listening to John, both John the Apostle and John the Baptist The long centuries of silence from God were now ending. And God's word was again being heard in the land. And I hope Canada, Toronto, the world in this pandemic that we will wake up to God's glory in Christ. Lord, this Advent season, deepen my wonder of your glory. Amen. (music) Thank <music>